welcome to Stemverse podcast episode 24. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Viv White. Viv is the founder of an innovative new design for learning and schools. Viv taught primary and secondary education for 13 years, worked in tertiary research for five years as a research fellow at Macquarie University and Victoria University, and served as an adjunct professor at the University of Western Sydney. She's the co-founder, managing director and company secretary of Big Picture Education Australia. The work that Viv does in Big Picture Education is the main topic of our discussion in this episode. Viv has taken the lead in establishing Big Picture Learning International, a venture that will influence governments and educational institutions and launch more schools for disadvantaged and disengaged youth. This is Stemiverse podcast episode 24. Welcome to Stemiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I'm Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. Hey, Marcus, here we are, another, another episode of Stemiverse. Which one is that? 23, 24? We'll have to count later. Yeah, losing count. It's been quite a few. And here we are with Viv White, uh, who is a director at Big Picture Education, which we'll hear a lot about later. So Viv, thank you very much for joining us in this episode of Stemiverse. Really appreciate it. We know you're very busy. Um, we were talking to John Fischetti about big picture education in a previous podcast, and that sparked our curiosity. We wanted to know a lot more about it. So he suggested that we talk to you. So could you take a few minutes, please, and tell us about yourself, um, a little bit about your path that brings you to big picture education, and then we'll take it from there. Well, my name's Viv, and I um, am in my late 60s, and for the last 40 of those years, I've been working in educational change and school reform. I was a working class girl from the western suburbs. It wasn't traditional for girls of my age to actually finish school, but I finished school and couldn't quite believe that I did. I thought, this isn't really for people like me, this thing called finish. And so I approached, I was awarded a Commonwealth scholarship to do law at Sydney University with a very high TER, and I thought the examiners had made a mistake. So I became a teacher because I thought that's what girls like me could do. And, of course, it made me very itchy, if you like, intellectually itchy and um, physically itchy because I just really thought, what if I had have done that? Hmm. Where would I be? (laughs) And now at my age, I look back and think, thank God I didn't go there. (laughs) (laughs) I would have been a tired, old, boring person, (laughs) me, um, in a black frock with a hat on. And and I've had this extraordinary life because I've chosen never to plan, always to pursue my passion and interest wherever it took me, however much or little it cost, really. So I first 
took a dive, if you like, into the area of uh, paid employment for working for social justice in a program uh, launched by Gough Whitlam in the 70s called the Disadvantaged Schools Program, and as a teacher, and then as a consultant, an advisor, and then finally, I became honoured to work with Raywin Connell and Ken Johnson at Macquarie University in the 90s, 80s and 90s, to research how well that program went. And through the course of that work, I discovered an incredible amount of people. I interviewed over 100 significant Australians about what works for disadvantaged kids in schools. And... I noticed as a little sub-project to the major question was that there was a lot of frustrated teachers and academics in Australia, and I'd subsequently discovered internationally, that really thought school was not working for most kids. It certainly was not working for very, very poor kids, but it wasn't working for all of our children. And that we really did need to think anew about what an education system would look like if it was for all of our children. So when you say disadvantaged kids in schools, what do you mean by that? Are particular backgrounds perhaps or physical disadvantages? Well, the data in our country hasn't has actually gotten worse over time. Mm-hmm. When the word was coined in the 70s, it literally was a socioeconomic description. Mm-hmm. People below a certain level of family income were considered disadvantaged in a number of areas, health, education, you know, property ownership, computer access, and that they just made an absolutely nominal cutoff with the amount of money Gough Whitlam had. If we gave you this much money for these communities, could you make a difference? Mm. And so that really was purely a socioeconomic index. And, of course, it was pseudo for and still is largely Aboriginal, rural Mm-hmm. working class people in uh, cities, that same group does very poorly compared to my children, maybe your children, but the rich do well and the poor do worse. I suppose that would include perhaps immigrants because especially in the 80s, 70s and 80s, there were a lot of, uh, still are, but in big ways back then. It depended on the immigrant group. And that too was around uh, socioeconomic status. So if you were a poor Greek farmer or a poor Greek housewife, you were much more likely to do poorly in the Australian context than the son and daughter of a lawyer from Greece. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it was still a pseudo measure, the low SES, socioeconomic status, whatever the country when you say the school was not good for these children, the disadvantaged children, in what sense? In academic performance, in work prospects, income later in life, all of that, right? All yeah. of that. But interestingly, um, you see, schools were designed in the late 1800s in the US, UK by men in universities, and they chose a set of subjects that they thought that the working class and factory workers needed to have in order to be good workers for their companies. Mm-hmm. And so they chose a set of subjects. And those subjects really still exist now. I mean, we've got maths and English and geography and history and science, and sometimes you call it STEM. And we have art, the arts, and we have the sports. And most of those subjects were determined in the 1880s by people at Oxford and Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Why not philosophy? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> exactly. You know, why not 
the law. Ah, finance, perhaps. It's arbitrary yeah. almost. <laughs> we say in Australia we still have eight key learning areas and when asked why those eight or why eight, and uh, a colleague professor of mine says, well, there are eight states and territories. They all had one they had to develop. <laughs> mm-hmm. And nobody could be left out. <laughs> so... I suppose triggered by the problem that you saw back then in terms of what education, especially disadvantaged children, are getting from the established normal schools, do you believe that uh, there is a question of reforming that standardised education into something else? Is that something that has driven you since? Let me take you back to the word disadvantaged. Yep. My position now What I did, I got involved with a thing called the National Schools Network, which was a big research project with over 500 schools nationally, and that was during the 90s. And the question we asked the schools was, what is it about the way my work as a teacher is organised that actually gets in the way of student learning? Hmm. Now, in that large-scale project, we had a range of schools. We had rich schools, poor schools, rich communities, poor communities, Aboriginal communities, non-Aboriginal communities. And it became really clear to me at that point that this was a much wider problem. (laughs) And so when we came to Big Picture, we haven't constructed it as a program for the disadvantaged. We think now, from all of the work that we've done over the last 30 to 40 years, internationally colleagues like myself and I have concluded that the design is not working for almost all of the children in our schools. They are bored. They are disconnected. They're symptoms, yeah. They're symptoms. And in fact, whenever we hear a television or, sorry, a a radio phone-in about, you know, problems in the schools, parents ring in and say it's the teachers. Teachers ring in to the radio station and say it's the community. The principals say it's the teachers. The teachers say it's the principal. The university professors say all of those things. And nobody ever in those radio programs say the school is an out-of-date delivery system for learning. That's what we say. It is an out-of-date delivery system for learning. So it doesn't fit with the times, if I understand right. Uh, It was a system developed in the 18th, 19th century for a particular purpose and that is no longer relevant. Absolutely. And in those days, the first iteration of the school was to sift and sort those kids out of school Mm -hmm. and into work. It was never designed to have all children do well, never. So what are the differences? Like, What does a modern society need from its educational system? And also after that, define what do well means. What is do well? Is do well going to university? Is it getting a job? Yeah. What does do well? What does do well mean? Well, where do I start? Um, (laughs) We've got 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a look at the system as a whole. We agree in big picture that we do need to redesign what we call the schoolhouse, that the delivery mechanism's out of date. We need a new design. And like everything else in the modern economy and the modern culture and the modern world, We believe that education is the last institution standing that does not customise or personalise learning. We personalise our healthcare, we try to personalise our taxi riding, we try to personalise how we have our house designed and decorated. 
but still when you go to school, one size almost always is for to fit all. Mm-hmm. And we think that is what the problem is. So the solution in our view is to personalise learning. And we argue in big picture, we're not only arguing it, we're actually doing it. We have 40 schools here in Australia and we have over 500 internationally. So what we think needs to happen is to start with student interest. Mm -hmm. How do you personalise a student's learning or anybody's learning is to start with what they're interested in. And that and only that will engage any human being in wanting to learn. So why are you two young men being podcast people? Why did you choose to do that? Do you like doing that work? Do you like doing this oh, yeah. podcast? Definitely, yeah. You love it, don't yeah. you? And you We're may not have had like all you. of the technical skills yeah. to do it, but you learned because you needed to learn in order to do what you wanted to do. So we say one student at a time, pursuing their passions and interests in a community of learners, both inside the building and outside the building. That's what the innovation is. So a young person would say, right, I'm really interested in technology, so I'll talk about Lockie. Lockie is interested in technology. And the mainstream school where he goes was not able to give him access to the high level of apps and YouTubes and so on that he needed to learn what he wanted to learn. So every Wednesday, his parents let him stay at home from school. Every Wednesday. 20% time. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. And during Wednesday, he pursued his passions and interests. When they found out that Big Picture was actually going to let him do it not only once a week, but twice a week, they said, come on, let's go back to school so you can leave school to learn just like you're doing now. So Lockie came back to school and his first project was to develop programming skills, learning programming. And he, I can't even name the programs, but I think by the time, within six months, he'd learned 14 or 15 different programming languages. Would that be right? Well, that's a lot. Like, um, Well, he's really smart. Lots. He learnt lots anyway, let's say that. He learnt lots of programming language. And his first app that he designed was for the courier company, local courier company. And the app would allow the courier to plug in their 50 deliveries a day, matched it up with the global positioning systems so that throughout the course of the day, the drops would differ according to the traffic condition. Mm. He was 13 when he did that. Hmm. Wow, it's impressive. He then, we don't, I'm not quite sure how his head got here, but through that process, he then discovered artificial intelligence. And he now, two days a week, uh, this is the last half of the year, he's only been in big picture a year, this year, the last half of the year, he goes two days a week to Newcastle University to the physics lab and works with the scientists on developing artificial intelligence applications and ideas. So how old is he now? Oh, 14 and a half. Okay, so definitely not a university student, but he works with university students or professors. Yeah, mm. but I, and we have at least 100 of our students across Australia work in universities while they're still at school. Lockie, and they also not only work in universities, but they work every week for two days a week. They leave the building to go and learn with people who are better at them and their teachers in their passion and interest. 
So nobody at Lockie's school knew anything about artificial intelligence except at a very superficial level in the science faculty. Nobody knows how to shoe a horse either in that same school. So Aaron goes to a farrier two days a week to learn the finer and best craft and art and skills around shoeing horses to become Mm. a farrier. (laughs) Another young girl, Michaela, is really interested in Indigenous, the world of Indigenous life. And so recently she went from her school in Tasmania to the Fitzroy Crossing and learnt in Western Australia about language and culture and Indigenous, the Indigenous language of Fitzroy Crossing. So every day, every week, there are children out of our buildings in the world working with others who are interested in the same thing at a very deep level and those that piece of work that they do out of the building counts towards their curriculum in the building. Great. Wow. And that's the innovation. How do you do this? Yes. Tell us about it. And especially if you are like a principal of a school or a teacher from that perspective. Let me answer your question and how do we know what, what well means? We talk very, very broadly. We say young people need to have the skills and understandings and capabilities to operate in the modern world uh, and to make a contribution to that world. That only by us working together around some key big questions in this planet are we we going to is the planet going to survive really it's a question of large scale and we survival and we need our young people to be part of that solution so one school i'll just quickly tell you how do we know they're doing well we've got a school starting in new orleans it's called the new harmony high school And it's designed to bring the old knowledges of the Indigenous people in New Orleans to the scientists in New Orleans and more broadly in America to ensure that Katrina does not happen again. That's the research question for all of the children in that school from age 14 to 18. So big ideas, big questions, big contributions, connecting kids to community through their passions and interests over time. To get a sense of efficacy and self and identity and what we would call mental well-being, they're placed in an advisory group of 17 to 20 students. They stay with their chief advisor, that called the advisory teacher. They stay with that advisory teacher for four years and that same group of 17 to 20 children over four years. So they're entering, if you like, a workplace the school itself looks like, you know, a team of 17 or so people who work together over time on interests that the individual have but also interests that the group have. So they do their own individual projects, they do their group projects like the Katrina one, that's a really big one. And we also have STEM schools too, by the way, so with a major focus on STEM, one of our schools in um, rural New South Wales, Canobolis, is part of that program, STEM and Big Picture Together, doing work. How they do well? Well, we do map it against the national curriculum, uh, but it's a map back process, not teacher subject process. Mm -hmm. And we have a set of learning goals in big picture that we insist are counted, if you like, as a key driver for their children's learning. And those learning goals, if you're interested, can be found on our website, but just quickly, empirical, quantitative and social reasoning, communication and personal qualities. So if a kid cheats on a test, they fail. 
personal qualities. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if they jig school and they, they're lazy and they don't do their homework and they're not kind to others, they can. we have tools that help teachers assess that, similarly with the rest of the core curriculum. So it's all mapped so that I think that's how you can integrate your program or your two to normal schools. Mm, That's exactly right. But having said that, we really are trying to break, I think, the big mould. And this is why one of your previous podcasts, Professor Freschetti and I know each other, is that we knew we are starting big picture now in little big picture, starting with prep and kindergarten. (laughs) We're going back to the little schools smaller school, uh, not the, the, the children are size smaller, but they're often more imaginative than some of the teenagers, let me tell you. Yes. Um, but we knew to, to get the confidence of the Australian community, we had to show a pathway to TAFE, work and university. So last year we managed to, I think, crack the big one, as they say. This was the big breakthrough for Big Picture Australia and the Americans are looking to us for what we've done. We've got a set of universities around Australia that will now take big picture students against a set of national standards that we have developed to universities without an HSC, without a BCE, without a WACE, to university by way of portfolio. Hmm. Which universities are those? Newcastle Uni, Australian National University, uh, University of Tasmania, Murdoch. Hmm. Could you describe that pathway? Let's say that I'm, I don't know, year 10 or 11 student right now, and I'm interested in that approach, that that pathway to university. What would my next few years look like? Well, you'd have to enrol in year 10 in a big picture school to even for us to even consider you. Mm-hmm. The year 10 program is the culmination, if you like, of 8, 9 and 10 work. And at the end of year 10, you present a gateway exhibition of all of the work you have done towards the curriculum, towards the, um, the you know, the learning goals based on your individual learning plan that's been negotiated with your family and your teacher. We negotiate a learning plan every quarter. We do an exhibition every quarter of what they've learned during that learning plan period. They would have to bring all of that together and do a very big presentation that usually lasts about an hour or two hours to their advisory teachers, their parents and their peers, and sometimes their mentors in the community. Once they pass through the gateway, they then go to year 11 and they begin again and they start planning their two-year course of study uh, around their interests and passions. And we start to get them connected to people in the workplace, people in the community and people at the university who can coach and guide them through the process. They have to do a range of things and they have to put it in a portfolio. They do a major research project that has a, uh, a question that has not, does not have a known answer. So, so an essential question, an open-ended question. And that big research project begins in year 11. They then have to do a community project which shows that they've given something back to the community. They do an 80 to 100-page autobiography, we call it, but really what it is is a, um, a summary of the students' learning, what they've learned over the course of their two years or three years of study against those goals. And then they have to have evidence 
that they collect about this. So it could be in the form of a podcast. Some of the kids are actually doing podcasts, uh, blogs, making movies. Strangely enough, for somebody of my age, I thought every the kids would all want this to be digital. Hmm. They don't. Hmm. They want a big, fat folder <laughs> that is huge <laughs> with hundreds and hundreds of printed out pages. God bless the trees in all of this, but they want to. They want to see it. Yeah. They just don't want it to be ephemeral on the screen and gone the next minute. It's a thump. Fuck it. The weight counts. Well, we joke about it in in our you know the, the adults in our organisation say, well, the kid we could actually show the kids doing better simply by weighing the portfolio. Yeah. Which do we need to, to market? Do we need to give it? Because <laughs> most kids would never do the amount of work. Our kids do so much work, but because it's to do with their passion and interest, they just love it. They love it. How do you assess the kids at scale? You're doing all this mass customization. Yeah, we're doing it at scale following way. We've got this, we've mapped it against what we call the Australian Core Skills Framework, which is a known framework in the education community on which most universities and boards of studies base their local curriculum. And we and so it's very rich. The framework itself is huge. And we're in the process now of training our local teachers to use that framework well. We're producing resources to help them do that. And those teachers then assess, but by this stage, if it's to university, they would have already got their mentor from the university. So Sophie, who I'm happy to talk about, is doing was accepted into Newcastle Uni with John Frigetti to do physiotherapy. No ATAR, no HSC. Professor of uh, physiotherapy was her, one of her mentors, along with a practising physiotherapist who was the physiotherapist for the, the Jets and the Junior Matildas. Sophie's a Matilda. She's a mm. soccer player. Yeah. So that she then presented that work that we'd already ticked off, the teachers had ticked off against those standards, to the university, and they speak to it. How long does it take to mark or assess their portfolio? That would seem a lot longer than marking an HSC exam. Hmm. Well, especially if we mark the HSC online in future, yeah, and yeah. it's all you know, it's all uh, algorithmic. But there's a pipeline, right? So there's so the qualitative difference between one and the other, right? You can't compare them directly. Yeah, you know, if I had every kid in every school across Australia doing a portfolio, if like the Finns, we trusted our teachers to be the professionals who can make that judgment, it would be doable. Hmm. But we don't trust our teachers to make those judgments. I was going to ask you, is big picture suitable for every student or do you see that some students are more suitable to, to big picture rather than uh, traditional schooling? It's probably a cultural well, thing. Well, you know, Peter, you could actually ask the same of the current arrangement. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we would say the current mainstream schooling suits about 35% of the kids. That's a big chunk of people it doesn't suit. Yeah. I reckon if we went to scale, that number would be only about 10%. And the 10% that our design would not suit and currently doesn't, kids who are lazy, uh, who are really naughty, because we don't have naughty kids at all in our schools, in our big picture programs. Hmm. You don't hear a teacher's voice being raised. You don't hear a kid acting out. So we would say, yeah, 
maybe 10%. But most of the students that leave the big picture do so because the work is too hard. When they go into a mainstream class, they can be invisible. So, yeah, the requirements, the work ethic are also big, right? As per the name of the organization, it's big everything. So as an organization, is big picture interested in, over time, converting or transforming both education as a whole, but also the individual schools towards a big picture model of education? What's, what are the long-term aims of the organization? Well, we have, we've had some fun with strategic plans in our organization and decided that they weren't a tool that were very, they weren't helpful for us. We, we made a decision we wanted to start some schools, study how they're going, support the teachers to make the model stronger and get the kids to wherever they wanted to go in a timely fashion. And our, our design continues to do that. But as well as that, we saw our innovation hub, if you like. I'm not sure what you call it. You know, like we're an innovation group. We don't want to take over the world. We can't. We don't have enough money to do that. (laughs) Although it would be fun to think about it. Um, We knew that we wanted to influence more broadly the education systems, more broadly. But equally, we work widely beyond schools too because all those mentors we're using, they're doctors and lawyers and scientists and and almost all of them say, why can't I go to a school like that? You know, that would have been really good for me. I hated school. <laughs> and so through our influence, it's sort of at a number of sort of levels really. It's at that very local level of parents. We get 95% of our parents are in our schools. That's unheard of in the mainstream setting. And now after 10 years and 12 years in Australia and 26 years in the world, the big picture design is now being asked by government to influence more broadly the thinking. So yesterday, for instance, I'm working with a group of very significant Australian others, I felt honoured to be considered one, was very nice, to design what they're calling a passion toolkit to help all kids in schools around Australia pursue their passions and interests in the mainstream setting. That's pretty cool, eh? Mm, that's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Ellen Costland, a colleague and friend of mine who heads up the Costland Innovation Foundation, she started it and wow. they're seeking our advice about how to make this happen. So that's just one example. But the portfolio to universities is another influence piece. And the other big influencer, because our kids are doing large projects and research, we actually produce materials and sell them to others just to recoup the money. It's not profit around how to do really good project-based learning, and that's a big feature in schools now. So we've actually learned how to do that really well. Not me personally. Mm. I'm not very good at that. But the teachers that I work with are just fabulous at that sort of work. I wonder, I've got two a part question. The first one is, if you have a established public school, say a private school, it doesn't matter, but it's a traditional school, uh, is there a process to convert it into a big picture school? That's a one. And then second, do you really need a school in order to participate in big picture type education? For example, we homeschool our kids. Can our kids be part of big picture? Well, Let's go to that nice little one, that a personal one of yours. Your children are being homeschooled. Do you know that I can free you up from that 
by simply getting you <laughs> to take your kid to Cookshill campus in Newcastle. Where do you live? In Sydney, but uh, we can we can definitely move to Newcastle. There you go. There you go. And they will join at least another 10 homeschool children and their families. So there's a study school Because once here, the right? homeschoolers open the door of a big picture school, they go, this is the sort of school I couldn't get for my kid and therefore I had to homeschool them. Mm. Now, I know there's homeschoolers that they see it as the only way to educate and nothing will change their mind, but there's another half of homeschoolers that are just not happy with the way schools are. Yep. When they see it, that half of the homeschooling movement, they see our schools and they, that's it. That's what we want to do. And we also get a lot of kids from um, non-government schools too, which is interesting. And we do have a couple of non-government schools that I work with, one in Queensland called Silkwood, which is a fabulous school. I was up there this week. We jokingly say that's Buddy Franklin's mother's mother-in-law's school and he's right, the footballer. <laughs> mm-hmm. His mother-in-law started that school for his Buddy Franklin's wife, Jacinta, the famous Australian model. So it's a not-for-profit school and it's a green school. It's just a beautiful school and its focus is on green and environment and so on. A school can convert. The best way to start a big-picture school, though, Peter, is to start afresh. You're not coming with the culture and the the rules and so on that, and the histories that people carry with them. And that has been mostly what they've done in America because it's much more flexible in the States with charter schools and, and so on, although they do work extensively with districts and systems and government by a government now comes to the American colleagues like in Denver and says, I want you to start seven schools, new ones in Denver. They're doing some work in Detroit in the old um, the, the housing estates that are all gone pear shape and they closed all the schools and they're giving them back the old schools to start again with big picture. But our environment wasn't as flexible here, so we worked with what we had and we've got three ways of doing it. We've got startup schools, genuinely one of those, and there's that's the Cooks Hill one at Newcastle, one at Launceston City Campus. That's a brand-new startup, fabulous big picture school. We also have what we call conversion schools. So Yulebrook in Western Australia, it was uh, a very deeply troubled community and a very deeply troubled school 10 years ago. You would never recognise it now from where it's come. It started simply with a year eight cohort. You know, all the year eights started in big picture and then they walk, basically walked the design up mm-hmm. to year 10 and then not beyond. That's a conversion And then we have the other, which quite popular model is they start in what we call an academy in a mainstream school. So the school that Lockie goes to is Morissette High, and they have two advisory classes of 40 kids total in a wing of the school. They're moving to four next year. And another school at Gateshead is Hunter Sports High Performing Arts, they're going to six advisories next year and when their new building's finished, they'll have their own wing. So that's the sort of academy. And the kids in the mainstream schools who move from that existing group of kids to the academy, we insist that it's across the board. So it's not a place, a dumping ground for everybody else's problems or the naughty boys and girls you want out of your maths class or your English class. The kids have to apply. So wherever you are, they've got to apply to come to the school Their parents have got to agree to be enrolled as well because the parents do the learning plan and the exhibitions. That's eight 
days a year they've got to give over to working with their kids. So that's, that's the way we do it. Great. And what are your major roadblocks? Hmm. Um, well, we got that one out. The biggest one was the HSC, and we've sort of cracked that one. That, that was the one that we had to do. We would have to die in a ditch for if we didn't get it through. Have any universities in Sydney accepted that? Western Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong. We haven't cracked the sandstones yet. Yeah, how come? Well, like, what are their object? No are their objections. We just we haven't gone to them because we haven't had the way we've added the universities is with our students. So we say we've got a student who's got a portfolio. Will you join our project? Mm-hmm. And so the spread is representative of where our schools are and where our children want to go. So the University of Tasmania, for instance, is only now coming on board because they've got their first student knocking on the door with the portfolio. Wollongong University saw our show on Late Line a few months ago and they rang me and said, how come we weren't invited? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to be invited? Yeah, sure, let's go. So they're joined and they're attached, interestingly, to Liverpool Boys because they've got a campus at Liverpool. Uh, Wollongong Uni and the universities are spreading out all over the shop, you know. So, yeah, we'll get Sydney and probably Melbourne when we're ready, probably. Um, I'm looking at some information about Big Picture and uh, I can see that you are an international organisation. How does it work internationally? I can see US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, Italy, Israel, India and China, of course, Australia. Is there a single overseeing organisation or each of those countries got its own? it's called the Big Picture Learning International Network. Mm -hmm. Big Picture Learning International Network. And all of those people are in it. And the two people who manage that network, if manage, can manage a network, but the ones that, the go-to people are myself, Viv White and Elliot Washer, one of the founders in America. So Elliot and I are the international folk and we're currently planning as of 2017 in 2019 to have an international conference where all of those people will come together. So how did you expand into those other countries? We share resources. We often coach each other's countries. Uh, Elliot and I have worked in a number of different locations. We've tried to get the UK off the ground. It's been a hard one to crack, interestingly. Mm. I think the the UK teachers are so overwhelmed with the um, accountability framework that they've had to live with for the last 20 years. They're just exhausted by it. I'd love to know how you got into China, because that's on your list as well. I would have thought that that's quite a regimented... (laughs) You don't go into System. China. The Chinese come to us. Ah, okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah. What the Chinese people that we're working with, they're real amazing. One guy, what the man, Michael, and his wife, Angel, they had they're international business people and they spent six months in Australia and six months in China. And they wanted this sort of education for Chinese students. But in China, as you correctly pointed out, is a um, very rigid, everybody does mass at two o'clock on a Sunday, you know, whenever they do it. They have an after-school schools that used to be all cramming schools from three to seven or eight. Well, they're very flexible. So Michael has got two of those schools with over 20,000 students in them. And he wants to make them big picture after school schools. 
Because in his view and in the middle class's view in China, if he can speak on behalf of the whole middle class, which must be 4 billion people, I don't know, (laughs) um, then they want an international education for their children. They want their children to be able to travel and learn and work about how to work in other countries other than China Mm -hmm. for the good of China. Is there a particular part of China where the schools are concentrated or...? Is it spread out? Like I'm thinking, for example, Hong Kong, perhaps, uh, Beijing, Shanghai. Shanghai. But then 20,000 are not all in one building. They're sort of scattered over campuses. I'm looking through your website and you've got uh, quite a bit of information for anybody that that is interested, including a a pack. You've got a uh, starter pack that people can purchase. Yeah, so Peter, if you decided you wanted to after talking to me, you're very excited, you want yep. to get your kids out of homeschooling and you want to get them to a school, you go online and pay 25 50 bucks, whatever it is, and that'll get you reading and looking. You get a video and you get mm. some materials. And then at that point, you would make a phone call to myself or to John Hogan, the other founder, co-founder who lives in Western Australia, and we would go through a very detailed six-stage process to assess whether we approved you as a school if you're in a school but as a parent you can just find out yourself and go to and we'll match you to a local school if you wanted your children to go to us what if you are a mentor for example you mentioned that there are mentors from the industry that help out uh, your students with and you want to volunteer your services what's the process there well it would depend Um, we have a range of ways of making connections but the central driver are the student's interest. So we looked for somebody to to support uh, Sophie in physiotherapy. She looked. We helped her look. Mm -hmm. And so the curriculum in the school around leaving to learn is we train the children to make the phone calls, to Mm -hmm. get their CV sorted, to get to find out locally where they might pursue their interest. And often they'll say, oh, I just want to do hairdressing. And I'll say, yeah, but how about, and how about, and how about, that's the job of the advisory teacher, to broaden the children. So let's say, as an example, let's say that we've got a child that is interested in gaming, making video games. So the child would need to find out local businesses that make video games, make a phone call or visit them and say, hey, I'm interested in this. Yes. Can I talk to one of your programmers or your game designers and see if they can... And that's how it works. Yes, you- but it's very protected because I don't want parents who listen to this podcast to think we just send their children willy-nilly into the community. We have a thing called an informational interview where they frequently do that on the phone under the supervision of their teacher They develop the the questions they will ask, like you did with your podcast, and then they do what they call a shadow day. Now, at that point, the school has already assessed, has this person got a working with children check, all of those sorts of things, and the students then go to the shadow day. Sometimes the teachers take them on that first shadow day, and sometimes the mums and dads offer to help, but the most important thing is that the kid learns to get on that bus and train and on their own bike and get there themselves because that's part of the getting ready for working in the community beyond the school. So by shadowed day, you mean the child will take, will have the initiative but will be shadowed by an adult, a parent or no, a teacher? No, they shadow the adult. 
Right, okay. Student shadows the adult to see whether, in fact, that adult is going to be a useful mentor for them. All right, so as the adult, like the expert, as the expert goes about the normal working day, programming yeah. or f doing physiotherapy things or whatever it might be, the child just follows along. And That's then exactly. finds out whether something's boring or too boring, <laughs> sitting all day on the computer. <laughs> well, we've got a kid on our website. It's interesting. It's one on, uh, on STEM. Uh, this student and I presented at a STEM conference, and he was into gaming from Western Australia. Really interesting character. And part of the job of the, the advisory teacher is to broaden his thinking about, well, is it just sitting behind a computer all day designing games? Is that going to meet your obligations as a citizen of the world to make a contribution to the world? So the teachers, their job is to sort of branch, get the kids thinking up other other things. So with, with Lockie, for instance, at his exhibition, I asked him, he's the artificial intelligence kid, I said, who are the people whose shoulders you stand on historically, Lockie? He had no idea. He didn't know where artificial intelligence came from. Mm. He didn't know who the scientists were. So you see where we're going here? He can go and play as much as he likes in the physics lab, but unless he actually understands the traditions, does he understand what other cultures call artificial intelligence, the historical precedence of it? That's the role of the educator, to broaden the students' imaginings and around their interest. That's amazing. As an intervention, the new University of Newcastle is fascinated. How did we as a group of teachers do this in this country, in this context, when so much else is not encouraging this sort of thinking? Okay, one last question. Once you retire, what does success look like? To me or to the organisation? Either or. Well, I could happily retire now because I've done what I set out to do. But then I've got another big idea. <laughs> okay. Never end. So I'm not going anywhere just yet. The big push for me was to really, really connect to the maker world. And I don't mean the high-tech maker world. I mean the, the maker world. The gen I want our young people to work with. Yeah, work with artists and craftspeople and, Creative and people. really bring the making creativity world yeah. in a big way into our big picture schools. That's my next big idea. For the organisation, I think some say, or I was, I was asked this question this week when I was talking to somebody because I'm joining with another a principal of a school in Melbourne called Peter Hutton who sets up Templestowe, and he and I are driving a whole notion of an education revolution for all. A maker education revolution? We could call it that, couldn't we? That's a good book um, on that, I hear. It's, it's a good name. Yes, and there's the book. <laughs> Maybe you should send me a copy. I'll send you a copy for that's sure. My <laughs> fee, that's my fee. Yes, <laughs> uh, noted. Um, but for us, we, we only ever set ourselves up to start some schools, study them and see if it worked as a design. It's for others to take it forward long term. And if it doesn't, yeah. we've influenced over 10,000 young people and their families in the last 10 years. That's pretty good. That's pretty good goal to kick. And I think the network effect of the people that you have affected is like could be eventually over the years, millions of people. So that's oh, extremely and impressive. In fact, it, I think already that yeah. we're, I think it's a corny now. expression, but I think we're at a tipping point for influence now. 
We are going to do our best through this interview. I think we'll try to reach as many people as we can. Yeah, if, thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, which I'm sure that a lot of them would, what's the best way of getting in touch either with you or with your organisation? Well, the website's got an info app. Mm-hmm. You can seek contact. Yep. But I'm more than happy. My name's Viv White and I'm Viv White at bigpicture.org.au. Great. I'd like to thank you. Uh, It was a real pleasure talking to you. We learned so much about Big Picture. Uh, I'm going to talk to my wife and see if we can get our kids. (laughs) Can't promise anything. We we just finished fixing the house. (laughs) Our new castle is a really nice place. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, But the principles are amazing. Well, maybe you could start a new one in Sydney. We could do that as well. There you go, join some other parents. That's how it happens. I think uh, that's... that's, uh, from the point of view of the impact in the local community, the larger community as well, like there's not that many things that you can do that have a larger impact than you know setting up a school and influencing right. kids for generations. So definitely, so thank you for all your hard work. So, Pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.